Hi, Roberto. Uh, how are you? I saw you opened the room already. Um, thank you. Can you hear me okay? To unmute, it's all the okay, way. Okay, okay. I found the. <laughs> Can oh, you hear Yes. Oh, um, perfect, perfect. Yeah, sorry. Could... I opened the room, but I realized then that maybe I did something that I shouldn't. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's fine. Um, if you could make me moderator. Um, oh, you know, yeah. Let's, okay, so make can... moderator. Yeah, perfect. Sorry. Uh, this oh, is perfect. Time. You already okay. know how it works. Perfect. Okay, let me add topics. Um, yeah. I'm adding. Um, sorry. I'm adding physics and. Okay. Good. And now I will add your presentation link. And you can see if this works. How are you today? <laughs> Everything good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very, very good. Uh, no. It's also uh, good weather. So th there is the sun uh, after many days of uh, storms. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Did you have floods at all or everything? No, no, no. It's uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I now in the in the office, so it's uh, comfortable to to make the, the presentation without disturbing. Okay, yeah. In Portugal, we had some floods, but um, due ah, to yeah. much rain. But I think right now it's also better. So yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. <clears throat> How was um, everything good? <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right now, you never know how holidays will be. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think the link should work. I added the paper um, to the chat. Do you? I don't know if you know where the chat is. All the way on the bottom left hand, there should be like a speech. Oh, uh, I have a window on the in the middle of the screen. Uh, oh, you're on the desktop app, app, right? So let me try. Okay, yeah, I, I <laughs> put a okay. comment, a stupid comment, but it works. Okay. Good, um, but I will monitor it for you. <laughs> okay. So uh, you don't, you know, it it will be fine. And then I'll start by introducing you shortly, mm -hmm. and um, and then and then uh, we'll do a short interview. I think it's more interesting than having like a traditional. Like, of course, I'll say where you went to university and where oh, yeah. you are now. But mm -hmm. then usually we do like a short interview. Uh, to kind of um, go over like how did you become a scientist type of question if okay. that's okay with you I think yeah, yeah, of course it's more interactive and uh, more interesting mm -hmm. and then um, yeah so I'll ask like a couple of questions and then um, yeah and then it's time for your presentation and, and okay. Q&A so okay. 
I'm posting on Twitter right now that we are about to start. And um, yeah, I hope you'll enjoy it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the main part that there, you know, it should be also fun for you. <laughs> Not just fast. It's, it's interesting that in the labels that there are uh, above the, the window of the, of the uh, chat, there is a magnet uh, uh, alongside physics. So it's exactly what I would talk about today, magnetism in, uh, in physics, astrophysics. <laughs> yeah, that one is pretty good. Yeah. The engineering symbol is so weird. It's a pizza slice. I don't know who oh. came up with that. <laughs> I don't the know. Yes, they can taste good pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they order a lot of pizzas when they work. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I'm I don't... teaching at engineering courses, so, uh, but they never offered me pizza or something like that. They didn't? Okay. <laughs> That's why, yeah, I don't know how they come up with it. I always ask myself who came up uh -huh. with the pizza slice, but well, it works so people can find it. Maybe people remember it well. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's more catching. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, so um, have you, I don't know, do you, have you ever uh, done any like, uh, these podcast type of style um, things. There's also Twitter Spaces and on LinkedIn now. Have you ever done anything like that? No, it's the first time that I uh, I'm making something like a podcast. Let's say. Uh, so I uh, heard some of your podcasts in the past <laughs> before. Oh, you did? Oh, I I didn't yeah. realize. It's interesting to follow, and maybe probably. Also in the future, I will use this <laughs> opportunity. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, I'm glad you you enjoyed it. Uh, it's always but, nice. Because I, I didn't know about this particular, let's say, um, application software, uh, because uh, here in Italy is not very diffused. Uh, but now that I know it, uh, it's very interesting to, uh, so to, to hear some uh, contributions. Yeah, nice. Yeah, there's this big discussion if Clubhouse will stay independent or because mm -hmm. other social media apps are trying are trying to copy okay. this type of app. Like this started during COVID and then Facebook tried it for a while, but Twitter is doing Twitter spaces a lot. And some people think Twitter will win, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We will see. But it doesn't really matter in the end on what app exactly we do this, you know, as I, I, I really like the format and that people get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good. It's also easy to, to reach for, for people. Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to, um, yeah, do the traditional having like mm -hmm. email invitations and so on. Oh yeah. yeah Just yeah. fine. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm only, uh, but it is not not my problem because uh, all the results that I will show from the science paper today are already published, so there are no problem of embargoes. 
but I will also show some uh, previews, some results that are not published, but uh, the journal at which we uh, sent the publication has no problem in diffuse before the publication uh, uh, date. So uh, oh, that's you will good. enjoy the, the, the first date of the new magnetar that uh, I think uh, nobody see up to now. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so exciting. It's a, it's a really preview. No, oh, wow. Better. There are also other uh, presentations, for example, in seminars in some universities, but uh, I think that this is the first public one. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that's a really exciting. Thank you yeah, for yeah, yeah. doing that. Um, <laughs> that's an honor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I, I hope that you will enjoy because the topic uh, is very specific in some cases, so maybe people cannot... Uh, be very, uh, let's say, interested in uh, uh, also enter more in depth about these details. So I will try uh, with a presentation, let's say, more simple also for a public, uh, a general audience. But I will uh, really hope that you can appreciate the discoveries that we did. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, I think it's so fascinating, especially because it's very far away from the research I usually do mm -hmm. and uh, learn to do. So I'm, you know, I'm always very curious. And um, which is the spirit of science, after all. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There was a guest speaker. He said, you know, we asked the question. Mm -hmm. you now, how did you discover like your curiosity for science and he said that his family, I don't know who exactly it was. Oh, it's it's a, a curious story indeed, because uh, uh, it started when I was a child, of course, like I think uh, all people that work in this field. But uh, I also asked myself why I am so interested in this kind of science, so in astrophysicists. But uh, uh, I think it's uh, uh, written in my DNA because also my father, which uh, was a bank layer up to some years ago, uh, and uh, he was really passionate about these kind of topics. So I started when I was a child and also with a small telescope. And then also I think I have to thank my teacher at the, I, at the middle school uh, of uh, maths that... Uh, introduced myself to, to science in general. And then I continued during my life to, uh, to, to study these kind of, of uh, topics. Uh, and at the end of the university, I decided before to take a, a grade in physics and then to uh, enter more in depth into astrophysics. So it was uh, very interesting from this point of view. Uh, and... Uh, it was natural for me to follow the, the way of the neutron stars because I don't know if you never uh, listen to in, in YouTube there are some videos about the, the pulsar sounds. So the sounds that are in, in a sense recorded from pulsars, from far pulsars that have been observed in the radio band. And uh, when I listen to these videos, I am really fascinated about the the sound of the universe, that some, it's a, a kind of music, let's say, that the universe is uh, 
transmitting to us. So this is my my passion about uh, this, this kind of science. That's that's uh, that's beautiful and it's interesting because we met the newsroom here and then there was released the sound of pulsars. Black no, no also black hole. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sound of the black hole now it, it was really really impressive. <laughs> yes, me. and it was so dark like yeah. <laughs> of course they are rendering of course they are <laughs> rendering but uh, like I, I think that in the chat is also they are sonified yes is, is correct uh, but for for pulsars is different because the pulsars emit in radio bands so in a sense it's like uh, listening to the radio <laughs> the communications of these kind of objects for black holes is different is uh, a rendering so of the sound but it's still very impressive because there is a science uh, based in this in this kind of uh, of sounds. So yes, it's impressive to listen. Yeah. So so do you like music in general? Like, are you do you also? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I also studied music in my life, uh, piano in particular. I was graded in the in the conservatory here in Italy, uh, and. Uh, also, in this case, it's uh, interesting to see that music, after all, is uh, science. Uh, for example, for piano, is the, the, the length of the uh, string in the, in the piano, in the, in the strings uh, instruments, are, um, let's say, related to the notes by precise uh, mathematical relations. So it's a, a kind of science, but uh, here the sensitivity of human beings enter in uh, a sort of dialogue with science and create uh, really uh, masterworks. So it's really fascinating also in this case. <laughs> yeah, that is fascinating because we had uh, quite a high percentage of, of uh, speakers that had both like... Uh, relatively almost professional uh, music career and science so it's really interesting how that also seems to be correlating this oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah and our guest speaker from yesterday who is at the Brookhaven lab at the particle collider he's also here uh, welcome Zangwu and Frank is here he was very looking forward to mm -hmm. your talk so um oh. yeah i wanted to introduce you I, I honor of this. <laughs> <laughs> yes of course and let me give a short um introduction we almost went through the interview already uh about how you discovered your passion for science so mm -hmm. welcome everyone uh, to science society and of course a special welcome to dr roberto Taverna, and um, he did his education at the University of Padua in Italy, and he did his PhD there in 2016 in the Department of Physics and Astronomy. And um, <clears throat> then he uh, did his, um, he is um, a, a researcher, um, at the University of Padua in Italy 
and he did his um he also went to the university of rome as a research fellow in the department of metaphysics and um you can check out i'm just um, adding the link in the chat the the website the organization website here and it's such an honor having you here and yeah as i said we already talked about how you developed interest as a child in uh, science and, and physics, um, which is it's really wonderful to hear that you had support also from your teacher in middle school. Um, I think that's really important too, to learn that. And um, the next question would be, is there maybe an interesting background story about this specific project how it came about and how you you uh, came had the opportunity to work on on this project thank you oh yeah uh, i think that uh, there is a curious story about it because uh, when i started of course i asked for a, uh, a thesis on neutron stars to my uh, professor uh, when i take the grade in uh, in physics the master thesis and uh, my professor proposed this problem of polarimetry, so polarization measurements in neutron stars. It was a very pioneering field of research at that time because uh, no instruments were launched. There was one, but it was then uh, not accepted uh, by, by NASA, if I remember well. And so uh, when I, talk, uh, I talked of this uh, argument also of deep topic uh, around uh, the world, people also asked to me, but do you really believe that it will be possible to measure polarization in neutron stars? Uh, and I was always, I, I trusted to these methodologies uh, that we were studying. And in the end, uh, last year, in, 2000, in December 2021, so two years ago, uh, but uh, almost one year of operation, it was launched this new satellite. And uh, indeed, uh, uh, it has been a really nice discovery that also our research and my research in particular uh, was confirmed in a sense, as I will show in this presentation. Well, I'm so glad that worked out. Um, so that's wonderful. Uh, congratulations for that. And uh, yeah, everyone, the uh, slides are pinned on top of the room. Please access them and Robert, the, the stage is yours. Thank you. Okay, so I, uh, there are a lot of, of uh, slides uh, in the presentation, so I will mention every time I change slides, I, I will try to mention the slide that we uh, will be. So, uh, so you can see the summary at uh, slide two. Uh, I will discuss uh, uh, the recent polarization measurement, as I just said, in the X-rays for two strongly magnetized neutron stars that are called magnetars, and I will also introduce what are magnetars. These uh, polarization measurements have been performed uh, with the XP satellite, which uh, is a, a mission organized in collaboration between NASA and the Italian Space Agency, launched in December 2021, and uh, just uh, uh, this month in January, it ended the first year of operation. So it's a very new uh, topic in astrophysics. 
so I will br briefly introduce neutron, neutron stars and magnetars in general. Then I will describe uh, what is polarization and what are the polarimetric techniques in X-ray astronomy. And finally, I will discuss two measurements. One is that we discussed in the science paper, which is also linked in the chat uh, for a magnetar, which is called 4U0142 plus 61. And the other one, uh, it's a sort of preview because the paper is in the uh, final revision stage. So uh, it will be accepted, hopefully, uh, in some days. But uh, this is, I think, is the first time that I will I present these results in a public meeting. So I hope you will enjoy it. Okay, so now I am at slide three. And let me start giving a general introduction on neutron stars. So neutron stars, uh, also for the general audience, are all that remains uh, of massive stars, where with massive, I mean uh, between 8 and 25 times our sun. So at the end of their life, the core of these uh, giant stars collapses under the action of their own weight, and their external layers are expelled in a supernova explosion. And the mass of what it remains, so the, of the core of the star, is expected to be within one or two solar masses. But the diameter is quite small, not greater than 20, 30 kilometers. That means that a neutron star can comfortably occupy a region uh, like that of Manhattan Island, as you can see in the uh, artist impression in slide three. Uh, this means that neutron stars are extremely dense objects. And the classical comparison in all the presentations to the general audience is that a teaspoon of the matter of a neutron star would weigh uh, about the same as the Everest Mount on the Earth. So they are very dense. So now I'm at slide four. And neutron stars uh, have, uh, have other weird properties, of course. First of all, they are fast rotators. And their spin periods are usually detected using their past emission, as you can see in the animation in slide four. And the measured spin periods are typically in the range between 0.1 and 10 seconds. Moreover, they are quite precise clocks in the sense that the spin period vary uh, quite slowly in time. Uh, this can be estimated through the spin down rate, which is the time derivative of the spin period in time. And it takes typical values between 10 to the minus 20 and 10 to the minus 10 seconds per second. So uh, the uh, neutron star rotation has to slow down in time, even if very slowly. And uh, it is indeed the uh, slowing uh, of the rotational motion of the neutron star that is responsible for another important property, which is that neutron stars are endowed with ultra strong magnetic fields. In particular, making the calculations, assuming, for example, the conservation of the magnetic flux in the collapse of the core, uh, it can be shown that the surface magnetic field intensity of these objects uh, assumes uh, a typical value of the order of 10 to 12 Gauss, that means 10 to the 8 Tesla, according to the values of the spin-down rate and also of the spin period. And to give you an idea of the order of magnitude of this magnetic field, I put some examples in slide five. So, for example, the magnetic field on the surface of our planet is around 0.5 Gauss. And one Gauss is the typical magnetic field of the magnets that we have at home. 
stars like our sun during especially during the solar storms can arrive to higher values like for example 1000 gauss while the strongest magnetic field we have achieved in laboratory is of the order of 10 to the 4 gauss so the typical magnetic field of a neutron star, which is 10 to 12 Gauss, is 100 million times stronger than the strongest magnetic field we can achieve on Earth. So a very huge magnetic field to give you an idea of the order of magnitude. Uh, given the importance of the spin period and of the spin down rate, uh, now I, I am at slide six, uh, Spin period and spin down rates are used to classify, in a sense, neutron stars in the so-called PP dot diagram, which is shown in slide six. In this diagram, we can identify different populations of neutron stars. For example, if you look at the center, there is a most populated cloud of dots, uh, which is the population of rotation power pulsars, which are also called radio pulsars because they were originally discovered uh, observing their pulsating emission basically in the radio band, as I said. Instead, looking at the bottom left corner of the diagram, there is a smaller and more diffuse population, and these are the so-called millisecond pulsars, because their spin periods uh, are of the order of the millisecond. And these particular neutron stars are characterized by accretion phenomena, so they accrete material, for example, for a companion star in the vicinity. And this can accelerate the rotational motion at the expenses of the magnetic field, which is typically smaller than that of normal pulsars, 10 to the 12 Gauss that I mentioned before. Looking instead at the top right corner of this diagram, you can see the population of the so-called isolated neutron stars. They exhibit some strange properties compared with normal pulsars. For example, they, are, they emit predominantly X-ray radiation, they are normally characterized by stronger magnetic fields with respect to normal pulsars, so even stronger. And some of them have also been observed to emit violent explosions of X-rays or also gamma ray radiation. And to complicate things, as the name suggests, they are isolated neutron stars. So we cannot explain this particular behavior in terms of accretion as for millisecond pulsar. Uh, of material from, a, new, from a, a, a companion star. And uh, some of these isolated neutron stars are believed to be endowed with a magnetic field also 100 or 1,000 times stronger than for common pulsar. And for these reasons, they are called magnetars, uh, which is the topic of our uh, published work. So now I am at slide seven. Uh, and let's enter more in depth uh, uh, in the class of magnetars. I put uh, as a short historical summary in this slide seven. Actually, magnetars were not immediately identified as neutron stars. The first magnetar to be observed in 1979 was dubbed the soft gamma repeater because it came forward as a huge blast of gamma ray radiation, which overloaded the satellites uh, in uh, orbit around Earth at that time. So the first association was not with the class of neutron stars, but with the class of gamma ray bursts, which are very strong explosions associated to particularly powerful supernova events, or also more recently to the merging of two neutron stars. However, there were a few problems with this association because first of all, gamma ray bursts are one shot phenomena. So they can happen only one time, of course, because they are related to the death of a star or to the merge of two objects. 
so they can appear only one time, while the soft gamma repeaters were observed to be repeated more than once from the same location, for this reason, the name of repeaters. And uh, usual gamma ray bursts were also observed to arrive from distant galaxies, while soft gamma repeaters, like the first magnetar observed, were observed uh, only inside the Milky Way or at most uh, from the Magellanic clouds, which are close to the Milky Way. Uh, and another class of objects uh, subsequently identified with magnetars uh, was initially called anomalous X-ray pulsars. So in this case, it was understood that they were neutron stars. But they show apparently the, the properties of common pulsars, but they emit in the X-rays, first of all. Moreover, also these sources were observed to emit powerful explosions of X-rays, and their luminosity in general appeared to exceed the energy losses due to the rotation. So uh, these objects cannot be powered by rotation, or at least not entirely powered by rotation as for normal pulsars. And for this reason, the name of anomalous pulsars. So now I'm at slide eight. Only in 1992, it was successfully proposed a theoretical model later known as the magnetar model, according to which both soft gamma repeaters and anomalous X-ray pulsars were neutron stars, powered by the particularly strong magnetic fields. And this is the reason of the name of magnetars to distinguish them from pulsars, that means pulsating stars, while magnetars means magnetic stars. According to this model, the internal magnetic field of magnetars is much stronger than for normal pulsars and also idly wound up, so with a strong transversal component, as you can see in the sketch on the left in slide 8. And this transversal component can also develop a strong magnetic stress on the crust of the, of the star, uh, and this stress is able to overcome the rigidity of the crust itself, uh, deforming the surface of the neutron star, and this phenomenon is called uh, uh, starquake. So a large amount of energy is released, and this could give origin to the giant explosions observed from these sources. Moreover, following the deformation of the crust, the external magnetic field lines, as you can see in the animation at the bottom right of slide 8, so the magnetic field lines can deviate from the usual dipolar shape. The dipolar field is the typical field of our house magnets. And it becomes a twisted field, a twisted magnetic field. Uh, now, if you change the slide nine, uh, at variance with the dipolar field, a twisted field requires that currents flow along the closed field line. So charged particles must come out from the star. Uh, this is represented in the, in the sketch at slide nine. The presence of these charged particles creates a sort of magnetosphere, so a region filled of charged particles around the neutron star, in which the photons that are emitted from the star surface can be scattered. And this phenomenon is called resonant Compton scattering, or resonant cyclotron scattering. Now at slide 10, the magnetar model found a first confirmation from the spectral observation. Uh, which means studying the flux of the collected photon as a function of their energy. In the soft X-ray band, magnetar spectra appear to be characterized by two components that are superimposed. A thermal component, the blue one in slide 10, uh, which is a black body component, and a, a non-thermal component at higher energies, which uh, is a power low tail. 
The thermal component is due to the photons emitted by the cooling star surface and arriving to us practically undisturbed. In other words, we can imagine that the star surface is a sort of hot iron ball, which is cooling. Uh, on the other hand, the power low tail can be due to these photons that are scattered in the magnetosphere that I mentioned before. Uh, there are also other sources that uh, don't show the power low tail, so they show rather a purely thermal spectrum. Uh, that means that in this case, for example, scatterings are not much effective, or for example, the twist of the field lines uh, is not strong at the moment of the observation. So now I am at slide 11. Uh, after this introduction, let's say theoretical, about neutron stars and magnetars, let's come to the very topic of the presentation, which is the measurement of polarization in the magnetar X-ray emission. Uh, first of all, let me only clarify what I mean with polarization of electromagnetic waves. So according to the semi-classical view of electromagnetic propagation that we used in our paper, each photon is associated to an electromagnetic wave, which is in turn determined by an electric field and a magnetic field oscillating perpendicularly to the propagation direction Z in this picture at slide 11. Uh, and the magnetic field and the electric field are also perpendicular to each other, as you can see in the picture. So each photon is associated to the propagation direction of the wave, the wavelength, or equivalently the photon energy, and the oscillation direction of the electric field, which is called the polarization direction, is the red one in slide 11. It is sufficient to determine the oscillation direction of the electric field, and not also of the magnetic field, because that of the magnetic field simply follows, being orthogonal by definition to that of the electric field. I will only consider plane waves. So now I am at slide 12. In the general case, if one takes a collection of many photons, their electric fields will oscillate in any possible direction, and the total radiation collected at infinity do not have a precise direction. In this case, in the left of slide 12, the radiation is called unpolarized. However, there can be some physical processes which force the electric field of photons to oscillate preferentially along one precise direction, as on the right of slide 12. In this case, radiation is said to be linearly polarized. Uh, for all the other intermediate cases, we can define a degree of polarization, uh, which gives uh, the fraction of photons which are polarized in a certain direction, so with electric field oscillating in a certain direction. And of course, the unpolarized case corresponds to a polarization degree PD equal to zero on the left, while the linearly polarized case on the right uh, to a polarization degree of 100% only to explain what I mean. So now at slide 13, we can ask ourselves, we have defined the polarization, but what we have to expect for the polarization of magnetar emission? Is it polarized or unpolarized? Well, strong magnetic fields like those around magnetars, which are very strong, can influence the, the direction of the polarization of the emitted photos. In particular, as shown in this picture, in slide 13, it can be shown that when the magnetic field is strong enough, photons are forced to be polarized only in two directions, which are roughly speaking parallel and perpendicular to the magnetic field of the star. Uh, they are called ordinary mode, the parallel mode, 
and the extraordinary mode, the perpendicular mode. So this means that uh, these ordinary and extraordinary polarization directions are orthogonal to each other. So the two orientations of the electric field differ by 90 degrees. And remember these 90 degrees, which will be very important in our discovery. And the, this property is a property of the vacuum in the presence of strong magnetic fields. And it is called the vacuum birefringence because in strongly magnet, uh, magnetic fields, the vacuum behaves exactly like a birefringent medium. And so the answer to our question of before, magnets are polarized? Yes. Uh, the radiation should be strongly polarized in these two modes, parallel or perpendicular to the star magnetic field. So now I have at slide 14. We have to take into account that, uh, so we have to say that the radiation from magnetars is polarized, but can we observe the polarization from magnetars? The problem is that the magnetic field around the magnetar is not uh, uniform, has not a single direction. Uh, if you take a look to the cartoon in slide 14, the magnetic field close to the star surface follows curved field lines, uh, and it is tangent to these curves. Uh, for example, the field lines of a dipolar field as a first approximation. So the direction of the magnetic field changes in general point to point on the star surface. Now, if we assume for simplicity that the electric field of the photons makes the same angle with respect to the magnetic field at a different point, when we sum together all the photons emitted from the star, the net result is that of unpolarized radiation, like before. You can see in the square on slide 14, due to the fact that the star magnetic field direction varies point to point. So according to this conclusion, there should be no hope to observe a degree of polarization different from zero for radiation coming from a neutron star. But there is an effect, I am slide 15, there is an effect predicted by the quantum electrodynamics, which is the quantum theory of electromagnetism that comes uh, to our help. It happens that strong magnetic fields are indeed able to influence the vacuum in a sense, to polarize the vacuum. This is due to the fact that the quantum vacuum is not really empty, but there are virtual electron-positron pairs. And these electron-positron pairs flip in and out of existence in a very short time of the order of 10 to the minus 44 seconds, which is the Planck time. So due to this very short time, they usually do not influence the surrounding world. We can't feel them. But if the magnetic field is very strong, these electron-positron pairs are stretched, let's say, along the direction of the magnetic field of the star, and this modifies the properties of propagation of the photons. And this effect is called vacuum polarization. It is curious because vacuum polarization was theorized in 1934 by Heisenberg and Euler, but it has never been tested as yet in laboratories. And the reason is simple to understand because uh, we cannot achieve the necessary magnetic field in our Earth laboratories. As I showed at the beginning, there is a huge difference between the magnetic field we can achieve in, our, in laboratory and the magnetic field of neutron stars. Nevertheless, it can be shown that these uh, stretched virtual pairs uh, that are represented uh, in slide 15 have a visible effect on the polarization of the photons that propagate in the vacuum. I don't want to enter into much detail on this because it's a very specific topic. 
But let me only say that the net effect of vacuum polarization is that we can indeed measure a remarkable amount of polarization from magnetars, despite the fact that the star magnetic field changes direction point to point. So in a certain sense, measuring a non-negligible polarization for the radiation coming from a neutron star could be an indirect proof of the effect predicted by Eisenberg and Euler in 1934. Okay, so now I am at slide 16. We have seen that magnetar radiation is likely polarized and that we can also measure this polarization from Earth. There is hope to measure this polarization. Now let's have a look on what is the polarization. So uh, in what direction is polarized the radiation that we collect from magnetars and at what degree of polarization? It is 100%, it is 60% or zero. Of course, the polarization properties of the emitted radiation, as you can imagine, are strongly related to the emission process from the surface. So on the physical state of the neutron star surface. And so the question is, what kind of material we have on the surface of a neutron star? Is it a solid surface where we can place our feet like on the Earth? Or is it something uh, different? Like, for example, uh, I don't know, the atmosphere of a star, of a normal star. So let's give a look on slide 16, where I put two simple sketches. According to the very first neutron star models that are dated back to the 70s, the surface of neutron stars was believed to be a solid surface, essentially composed by EV elements like iron that originate from the latest stellar evolution stages. Of course, uh, neutron rich, so with a high number of neutrons inside because they are neutron stars. However, more recent observations of isolated neutron stars show some broad absorption lines in the spectrum. And these absorption lines are suggestive of the presence of an atmospheric layer that covers the surface. Because if we saw absorption in the light, we can think that uh, the photons at a certain energy have been absorbed by the atoms of a gas layer close to the surface. Of course, this atmosphere on a neutron star should be much different than around the Earth, for example, or from standard stellar atmosphere like our Sun. For example, since uh, neutron stars are very dense, as I mentioned before, the surface gravity, you can imagine, is very strong. Uh, it's uh, billions times that on the Earth. And so the atmosphere around the neutron star should be only a few centimeters thick. But uh, uh, despite this thickness, uh, we can see, in any case, the effects uh, on the spectra of the radiation. However, we have to take also into account that uh, in the presence of very strong magnetic fields, matter, and so also the gas of the atmosphere, behaves uh, very differently with respect to normal conditions. In particular, it can happen that the gaseous atmosphere condenses. So you can imagine to a rain on the star surface, even if the temperature of the star surface is of millions of degrees, but it can condense in the presence of strong magnetic fields. And in this case, the atmosphere settles on the surface, leaving exposed the solid surface like before. So there are two possibilities. The radiation can arrive directly from the solid surface, or it can be reprocessed in an atmosphere which covers the star surface. Now, let's change to slide 17. Theoretical models show that having an atmosphere or having the solid surface exposed does not make much difference studying the spectrum, so the flux of photons as a function of the energy. 
for this reason, even if the astrophysical community performed many spectral measurements of neutron stars and magnetars up to now, we couldn't say much about the physical state of the surface because the spectra are very similar. You see, it's impossible to distinguish if we have the feature of an atmosphere or of the condensed surface. But if you go to slide 18, you can see that the predicted polarization in the two cases of atmosphere or solid surface is very different. In the, if an atmospheric present, uh, sorry, if an atmospheric layer is present on the surface of the neutron star, we can expect a high polarization degree. You see in the plot on the left, it is greater than 80% for the total photon collected. Well, if the solid surface is left bare on the surface, the polarization degree is not larger than 15, 20%, as you can see uh, in, the, in the plot on the right. Moreover, this is not shown in the, in the plots, uh, but uh, it's an important property. Uh, in the case of the atmosphere, uh, the photons are predominantly polarized uh, in the extraordinary mode, which means perpendicularly to the star magnetic field. Well, in the case of the solid surface, we can have both ordinary and extraordinary modes. So both photons polarize parallel or perpendicular to the magnetic field of the star. Moreover, if you change to slide 19, we must not forget that uh, before to arriving to, to us, the photons may undergo scatterings, as I mentioned at the beginning, in the magnetosphere of the star, which is not the atmosphere, it's something different. It is farther from the surface. As I mentioned before, this can produce a power low tail in the spectrum that I also show you in a previous slide. Uh, and theoretical calculations show that the net effect of these scatterings in the polarization is to set the polarization degree to 33%, around 33%, uh, perpendicularly to the magnetic field, so in the extraordinary mode. And you can see an example in slide 20 of what happens if scatterings are taken into account. Uh, here, uh, it is shown the difference between the cases with and without the scattering for both the atmosphere case on the left, top left, and the solid surface case on the bottom right. So, uh, in any case, when we take into account scatterings, the polarization at high energies, where there is the power low tail in the spectrum, saturates at a value around 33% in the extraordinary mode. So, let's change slide 21. We have now defined all the theoretical framework we need. And so let me only say something about how we measure this polarization for magnetars. As I mentioned at the beginning, we use the satellite XP, uh, which is a collaboration between NASA and the Italian Space Agency. And uh, XP is essentially an X-ray telescope, but it can also measure the polarization of the X-ray photons using the gas pixel detector technology. Uh, the sketch here reported is a sketch of a gas, gas pixel detector. And uh, how it, it works, uh, uh, there is the photon that enters in the detector. The detector is a cell filled of a particular gas mixture. And there is an effect, a physical effect, which is called the photoelectric effect, according to which the photon can be absorbed by an atom of the gas with the expulsion of an electron. And according to the theory, 
the direction of the expelled electron is the same as the polarization direction of the incoming photon. So in this way, XP can reconstruct the polarization of the radiation. I remark that these are the first polarization measurements in the X-rays since more than 40 years, because the only other satellite with onboard an X-ray polarimeter was launched in 1978, but it relied on a different technology, very pioneering technology, and it could observe only two sources and no magnetars. So these are the first ever measurements of polarization in the X-rays for magnetars. Now, if you go to slide 22, I show the position in the sky of the two magnetars we observed with XP. On the left, uh, we have the uh, magnetar 4U0142 plus 61, that of the paper on science. It was observed in February 2022. Uh, and it is located in the Cassiopeia constellation at a distance from the Earth of around 13,000 light years. The second one is instead the preview that I mentioned before. So uh, it is the magnetar 1RXS J1708 minus 4008, etc. This is the long name. Uh, it was observed between September and October 2022. It is located in the Scorpio constellation. And uh, uh, you, you see, uh, we don't know exactly what is the distance of this source, but roughly speaking, we can say between 16,000 and 32,000 light years from, from the Earth. And the two sources were observed for around 1 million of seconds both, so around 20 days for both. And this allowed us to reach a good statistic to perform all the possible analysis. So both the spectral analysis, like previous uh, uh, instruments, and also the polarization analysis, of course. So now in slide 23, you can see uh, for what concerns the timing analysis, which means uh, the photon flux as a function of the time, uh, we reconstructed the so-called pulse profile. So where, where is the pulse of the neutron star in time? And this allowed us to measure the spin period of the star, uh, as well as the spin down rate. We also found the values that are compatible with the previous investigations in the literature. And also the magnetic field is what we expect, uh, around 10 to the 14 Gauss for both the two sources. In slide 24, you can see instead the result of the spectral analysis. So the photon flux as a function of the energy. Uh, also, in this case, we found the value uh, and the properties which were also uh, already investigated, in particular for the first magnetar on the left, 0142. Uh, we found that the spectrum can be decomposed as a black body plus a power law, if you remember at the beginning. Uh, and the power law in particular suggests that photons are undergoing scatterings in this source. Instead, for 1708, you see many lines. Why? Because uh, there is no power law in this source. We have only thermal components. So we can say that uh, there is no scattering. Uh, the uh, external field lines are not twisted so much. But the problem is that uh, in previous investigations, there, there was a power low tail. So we uh, should check if the instrument was broken in this case. And we compare the observation by XP uh, with the observation of other instruments, which are swift and nicer, performed within one month. Uh, with respect to the XP observation. And also these other instruments uh, uh, found no power low tail. So the conclusion is, yes, the source is in a different uh, state, let's say, with respect to the past. Okay, uh, let's come to the clue, 
depolarization measurement, which is shown in the in the slide 25. Uh, there is a polar plot. Uh, you can see both depolarization degree and depolarization direction in this plot. In particular, depolarization degree is on the radial coordinates, so the amount of polarized photons is higher going outwards with respect to the center, while uh, the azimuth indicates the polarization direction in the plane of the sky. Zero degrees here correspond to the direction of the galactic north, for reference. Uh, the measurements in the diagram are, are represented by the small crosses, if you can see them, uh, which are within the uh, corresponding error contours. And this plot, uh, in particular, refers to the first magnetar, 0142. As you can see, the polarization direction varies from around 50 degrees east of north at smaller energies to 40 degrees west of north at high energies. If you see, there is a net difference between the two orientations by exactly 90 degrees. And this was really surprising. We expect this, but of course it is surprising that the theory works. And the same, at the same time, if you look at the polarization degree, it is quite small at low energies, it is uh, on the left of the, of the polar plot. You see there is 15-20% uh, at low energies, and then up to 35%, let's say, percent at high energies on the right. So why this behavior is so interesting? First of all, because, as I mentioned, the, uh, the polarization direction changes by exactly 90 degrees. And as I mentioned before, if strong magnetic fields are present, radiation is expected to be polarized only in two orthogonal directions, parallel and perpendicular to the star magnetic field. Hence, this swing of the polarization direction is strongly suggestive that there is a strong magnetic field around this source. Uh, this is very important because the value of the magnetic field that I mentioned uh, with the spin period and the spin down rate, 10 to the 14, and so on and so forth, is only suggestive of an order of magnitude of the magnetic field. It is not a real measurement. So nobody has never shown beyond any reasonable doubt that magnetars possess a strong magnetic field up to now. But the fact that the photons are polarizing these two orthogonal directions points strongly in favor of the strong magnetic field in magnetars. It's a sort of smoking gun. And there is another property. If you look at the polarization at, the, at high energies, 35%, is a value which is impressively close to that value, 33% that I mentioned before for scatterings. If you remember, I, I, I saw that uh, when there is scattering, the polarization should be 33% in the extraordinary mode. And we verify that there is a, a value which is within the error compatible with 33%. And also there is another important uh, uh, information hidden in the, in the plot uh, as slide 25. Uh, I mentioned now that the polarization direction of the photons at high energies, if scatterings are present, should be, uh, let's say, perpendicular to the star magnetic field in the extraordinary mode. So since there is the 90 degree swing, those at low energy should be parallel to the magnetic field in the ordinary mode. Now, if you remember, there is only one model of surface emission which is compatible with polarization parallel to the star magnetic field, which is not the atmosphere, it is the solid surface. So this could be the first time we observe radiation coming directly from the solid surface of a neutron star, so without the presence of an atmosphere. Uh, of course, what I'm telling you now is only qualitative, so uh, 
a sort of comparison between model prediction and observed data. But we also produce some precise numerical simulations to, to, to tell these things. And these simulations are represented by the stars that you see in the plot uh, slide 25. Uh, and you can see that indeed we found a good agreement between the theoretical expectations and the data because the, st the stars follow the, the, the data. So they fall inside the contour of the corresponding energy. So concluding in slide 26, uh, you see that uh, the better agreement between our theory and the observation is obtained not uh, for radiation coming from the entire star surface, but from a limited region of the surface, so a belt localized around the magnetic equator of the star. And this means that the part of the solid surface which could be exposed is not necessarily the entire surface, but could be only a region on the surface. Now, in slide, 20, in slide 27, you can see the polarization measurement for the other magnetar, and this is new. So nobody see this before in public meetings. Uh, this is for the magnetar 1708. Uh, as you can see, there are some differences with respect to the other magnetar. Uh, first, uh, the polarization direction does not change by 90 degrees in this case, but uh, it remains constant at a value which is around 60 degrees west of north. Second big difference, if you see the scale in the radial coordinate, the polarization is much, much higher than before. It can arrive up to 80% at high energies. And also in this case, we can draw some conclusion. If you remember, uh, we have only one model of surface emission that predicts uh, polarization so high, which is the atmosphere model. If, if you remember slide uh, 18, uh, the atmosphere model predicts indeed a polarization uh, greater than 80%. Uh, of course, here we have uh, a, a sort of problem because in the atmosphere model, polarization is 80% at all energies, while we have found also polarization 20% at small energies, as you can see in the, in the polar plot slide 27. So this means that there, there is to be more than the only atmosphere. There is to be also another region uh, with the solid surface exposed. And the possible scenario is shown as slide 28. So there could be still an equatorial belt like emitting like a solid surface, like in the previous magnetar, but this time with the addition of another region and covered by an atmosphere, uh, which is located, for example, at the pole, at the magnetic pole of the star. Or these two regions could be also some spots on the surface located in different uh, locations. Uh, finally, in slide 29, um, I showed that also in this case, we performed some precise numerical simulations and both these models that I showed you before in slide 28 can uh, well explain the data. So the uh, colored curve, the solid curves and also the dashed curves uh, are the predictions of the model and the blue cyan dots with error bars are the uh, XP measurements. Okay, so in conclusion, I am on slide 30. We had the opportunity to explore for the first time ever uh, the mag two magnetar sources uh, in polarized X-rays. And this new technique, uh, together with the other analysis, uh, like the spectral analysis, allowed us to learn some important lessons. First of all, we confirmed that magnetars are endowed with ultra-strong magnetic fields, thanks to the 90-degree swing of the polarization direction in the first magnetar. Then our investigation led further support to the magnetar model, 
And in particular, we could see that the, the power low tails in the spectra correspond to a polarization of around 33%, exactly the value predicted by the theory. And also, we could provide a first hint of emission coming directly from the solid surface of a neutron star. And moreover, we have seen that uh, likely atmospheric and solid surface can, in principle, coexist in the same source, as I show in the last slides. Or we can also uh, think that there are other models to explain this data, but we have non-numerical simulations for these other models. So there are models still in development. We can study them and uh, uh, we can maybe perform other investigations. While we are planning also to observe other magnetars with XP in the second year of operation of the satellite, and it could be extremely interesting to see if our theories are still confirmed, so stay tuned about this. And thank you very much for your attention. I am uh, glad to answer to all your questions. Thank you so much, uh, Roberto, for this wonderful presentation and for um, explaining um, the principles you use so well um, that um, give us like a, a deeper insight into um, yeah the the study and also for sharing you know not published data yet that's really an honor um, so thank you so much and um, everyone if you have questions please raise your hand uh, feel free to also leave questions in the chat and uh, we will read them out for you and um, yeah I want to I know Frank was really curious to uh, for this talk so I want to give him the opportunity to ask first go ahead Frank uh, yeah thanks uh, Katerina yeah thanks uh, Roberto for the uh, excellent uh, lecture it's uh, definitely uh, much beyond my uh, um, paper to do I mean I uh, understand the, but uh it's, it's definitely it's so so much uh, information here presented and uh, let me just uh, try to um, like a homework to, 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 to get a full picture that what uh, uh, has been uh, uh, explained the so there so there you, you're explaining that uh, there are two uh, I'm looking at the picture of um, the slides uh, 26 so uh, the, the scatter ones uh, uh, produce the X mode, uh, and the uh, non-scatter one, say from the solid surface without the atmosphere, that's the O mode. Yeah. Or, uh, or uh, mm -hmm. yeah they, they, uh, we we think this is our interpretation, of course. We think that uh, since there are these two different modes, uh, uh, which are uh, highlighted in the observation, and since uh, uh, high energy photons, uh, if they arrive to 33%, uh, they should be in the extraordinary mode, according to the theory. Now, the low energy photons are consequently in the ordinary mode, and uh, the low energy photons uh, should arrive directly from the surface of the neutron star because uh, photons at those energies uh, are, uh, will arrive only from the surface. Uh, so the only model for which we have ordinary photons uh, in presence of strong magnetic fields, of course, from the neutron star up to now is that of the solid surface. 
Of course, there could be other models. Uh, for example, in our paper on science, we mention a, a couple of other models. For example, there could be a particular kind of atmosphere that behaves more like a solid surface. But uh, these are mostly speculation at this level. We are waiting for uh, numerical simulation, which are more, uh, let's say, uh, rigorous also to be compared with data. I see. So just to uh, understand the basic uh, a little bit more, these uh, slides 19, uh, 13, I was um, a little bit distracted while we were explaining, going through the slides. So mm -hmm. for the ordinary mode, uh, the polarization is uh, arbitrary. It, it, it's, it has, uh, it's, it's not the as the other one is um, uh, confined to only two perpendicular directions. So for the ordinary, uh, it's arbitrary uh, for no, the low energy. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, let's say, uh, I presented them uh, uh, for simplicity, like parallel or perpendicular to the star magnetic field, but this is not completely. Uh, they should be, as you can see in slide 11, uh, the electric field should be, in any case, perpendicular propagation direction, which in slide 13 is K. So the blue and green arrows should be perpendicular to the black one. And then uh, they can be or in the plane, so parallel to the plane made by the propagation direction and the star magnetic field, or perpendicular to this plane. So also in the ordinary mode, the arrow, let's say, is uh, only in a precise direction, uh, but it is, uh, uh, let's say, forced to be in the plane made by K and B, and in this plane, it should be, by definition, perpendicular to K. Right, and for, for the, uh, this, this, this slides, I mean, the, the cartoon on this slide, I 100% uh, understand. It's just a, just EM wave, right? So it has a propagation, and you can prove that the uh, uh, the, the two fields are perpendicular yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. to the yeah. propagation. Exactly. I, I'm just trying to understand uh, what what is the can you repeat the uh, that the, your uh, you, you you were explaining the what is the difference of the polarization of E O versus E X in the strong and the weak uh, energy. Uh, Okay, no, the, the no, only difference between the two modes of propagation is the direction of the electric field. So, uh, if you imagine which is? that, which is the blue and the green arrows here. So, the, if you put the arrows, uh, uh, let's say, close to each other, you will see a sort of cross. They are 90 degrees one with respect to the other. So one oscillates, let's say, vertically, and the other one horizontally. So it is in perspective in this slide, so you maybe cannot understand very well. But uh, let's imagine to have uh, the plane of polarization of the plane of the screen. The extraordinary mode is a vertical line, so the electric field oscillates vertically, and the wave is arriving towards you. And the ordinary mode is oscillating horizontally. So the difference, the only difference is the, that the electric field of those waves 
oscillates in orthogonal directions. So with a difference of 90 degrees, which is what we observed if you look at slide 25. Um, is that is that okay, Frank? Because um, Dr. Zhangbu, um, he had a question. If you sure, I mean, I, yeah. I'll just you know uh, uh, wait for you know uh, if there's more time. Yeah. Uh, oh. By the way, just quickly, the uh, is it is it the um, so for, for, is the line of sight uh, a, a issue here for your observation window? Uh, sorry, can you repeat the question? Is the line line of sight to, to towards the object the star is the issue uh, for to to give rise some uh, observational window? Is that is that a relevant question here? Oh, let's say yeah. Uh, uh, for the observation in general, we have to have the line of sight which is uh, uh, let's see uh, free from other objects. For example, the, the most important problem is the sun but uh, we can observe uh, any direction. Of course, we have to take into account uh, that uh, having the line of sight uh, does not mean that we know uh, the, all the other geometrical properties of the source. For example, the inclination of the rotation axis and so on and so forth. But this can be constrained also by polarization and of course also on the spectral radiation. So there is no problem with the line of sight of the of the for the observation is not uh, an issue okay thank you you're welcome um yeah please don't uh please go next okay can you hear me yeah okay great so congratulations this is really exciting measurements and so i have Two questions related to the, your earlier discussions about the vacuum bidifferentiency and polarizations. Mm -hmm. My understanding from your discussion is all the photons emit, although they can go through the magnetic field, but because it, most of them scatter by the particles, which make the polarization about 33%. So, so the effect of the vacuum bidifferentians and polarizations uh, are basically kind of washed out by the scattering. But um, I mean, the reason I'm very interested in because uh, when in two years ago, we tried to publish a paper on the, on the vacuum bidifferentians, we searched the literature and some of the authors uh, published a paper in 2017 that so there is evidence of the vacuum bidifferentians by looking at the polarizations of the lights which you measure from one of the neutron stars. Can you explain more whether, whether that still holds or, or from the new measurement you can actually prove most of them are actually scalar deprocessed? Okay, the, the, the vacuum, thanks for the question because it's very interesting, of course. Uh, so for the first part of the question, that of the scattering, uh, uh, actually also if photons underwent scattering in the magnetosphere, uh, the effect of vacuum, uh, be the fringes, vacuum polarization is not washed out, 
because it can be shown that uh, the, uh, the last scattering radius, so the distance from the star at which uh, the scattering can occur, is much smaller than the polarization limiting radius, which is the limit uh, in which uh, uh, vacuum polarization effect can occur. So let's say that we can associate to the star a um, original polarization imprint, which is that given by the surface emission plus the magnetosphere, so the scattering. And this is preserved up to us because of vacuum polarization. So this is the first, uh, I think, the, the, the answer to the first part of the, of the question. So uh, yeah. um, just to follow up, so the evidence for vacuum by referencing now, it's, uh, it's proofed because before I think the static exactly. error by is very big. That's why it's part of the, of the, of the work that I, uh, I would to uh, omit in my presentation now <laughs> because it's, okay. uh, the problem is it's more complicated than uh, what I presented in the okay. sense that uh, these uh, so in principle if you see a high very high polarization degree like those uh, like that in the second magnet 80% mm -hmm. uh, in principle is sufficient to say that uh, yes if uh, um, vacuum B refringence was not present you couldn't observe such a high polarization degree but the problem is that uh, these uh, uh, treatment holds only if we consider radiation coming from an extended region of the neutron star because uh, what we observed is not uh, the real in direct imprint of vacuum refringence but an indirect uh, effect on depolarization and this effect is competitive with the depolarizing effect due to the geometry that is what I tried to, uh, to, to explain because the magnetic field of this star is not uniform. So it also, if, even if the photons are polarized only in the same way, when they arrive to us, if radiation comes from the entire surface, we would see a very low degree of polarization if vacuum B refringence were not present. But if radiation comes from a small spot on the surface, there, you can consider the magnetic field as more or less uniform. And so you have no a reduction, an expected reduction of the polarization degree uh, due to the geometry. So you cannot test the power of the uh, vacuum B refringes to maintain the polarization. This is the, the tricky thing. Uh, okay. So in a sense, we could have... Uh, spot the first evidence of vacuum B refringence, but we cannot say it uh, with the maximum certainty because we, we don't know if the region of, em of emission is uh, large enough to allow a depolarization that can be cancelled by the vacuum B refringence. hope uh, this explanation is clear because it's not... Yes, it's very clear. Thank <laughs> yes. you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I have a second question is related to the vacuum polarization. I mean, you mentioned the vacuum polarization has never been observed, even the Heisenberg and Euler proposed in 1930s. 
but I thought the Nam Sid and Casimir effect they got the Nobel Prize is it yeah. exactly it proved the vacuum polarization, right? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a bit different in, in uh, reality because uh, Casimir effect uh, concerns the effect of electric fields on uh, virtual electron positron pairs, while vacuum polarization is the effect of the mag strong magnetic field. So in a sense, you are, you're right, of course, virtual electron-positron pairs are being already detected with the Casimir effect, but not the uh, conclusion that Eisenberg and Euler draw in the paper of 1934, which uh, uh, concerns the effect of the strong magnetic field. And this uh, is investigated, uh, for example, in the experiment PV-LAS, which is, uh, I think, here in Italy, near Pisa, uh, is developed. And they are trying to observe the difference in uh, refraction indices between ordinary and extraordinary mode in the vacuum, uh, highly polarized. So in this sense, uh, it is not being proved uh, up to now. Okay, but the NAM shift, I think it's the electric field which polarizes the vacuum, right? Yeah, 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 of course, of course. Okay. Yeah. Indeed, polarization is, a, let's say, a wrong term in the sense of for the magnetic field. For the electric field, of course, but electric field, the effect is called polarization. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you are right. Okay, thank you. But very exciting results and very impressive. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this interesting discussion. And uh, Kiko, did you have a question? I do today. Um, super cool talk. Uh, so, uh, and also forgive me, because I don't know really anything about physics, but or space like that. But uh, I was kind of curious. So, like, when you guys are looking in space, right, and you're uh, seeing these different things, like the like whether it's like gamma ray bursts, whatever type of light that you're looking for. Um, is it possible uh, that the uh, the phase of the light could have changed from the source to here? I know, like, uh, or I think uh, that, like, sometimes as light can um, interact with uh, different molecules that, like, sometimes, like, have, like, a chirality, the phase can change. You know what I'm saying? So is it possible that, like, the reading that you are getting may actually be different because there who knows what that light's encountered in its like travel to earth yeah this is a really interesting question uh, thanks and these uh, allowed me to uh, make more precise uh, one peculiarity of this measurement that i probably don't didn't stress so much that this measurement has been done in x-rays and uh, indeed x-rays have the property that their interaction uh, with the uh, matter that can uh, encounter the light uh, uh, coming from the source up to us uh, is very particular. So we can see immediately if there are, uh, let's say, interactions with matter that can change the phase of the, of the polarization of the, of the electric field of the light. So uh, in our case, for the X-rays that we measure from magnetars, uh, the trick is exactly that uh, we uh, can say that the phase does not change from the so-called polarization limiting radius, which is the sort of region in which uh, 
the phase can change, but it is still close to the surface. So from this uh, level up to us, the electric field of photons does not change anymore. Uh, despite the fact that there could be some interaction with the interstellar medium, but this is taken into account uh, uh, inside the uh, spectral evolution. But the polarization cannot change in any case because, uh, as I mentioned, it, it is uh, necessary that a strong magnetic field is present. So even uh, it, it is possible that it changes if it encounters another neutron star, for example, um, or, for example, also a black hole. If it passes uh, near to a black hole, the polarization can change not due to magnetic fields, but due to um, gravitational fields, because also the gravitational field can affect polarization. And this is important for observation of radiation coming from near black holes. Uh, but in this case, we can identify that the radiation has passed near to a black hole. So we can say, okay, we cannot study exactly what these neutrons are emitted, but the uh, effect of other uh, sources uh, in the middle. I hope that I, I answered to this question. It was very interesting. Yeah, and uh, do you mind if I ask like one follow-up question? Mm -hmm. So, do you then know that as the X-rays escape the source, that the lack of gravity wouldn't change or or affect the um, the polarization? This is another very interesting question because, yeah, in principle, it is possible because, uh, as you probably know, there is the effect of ray bending. So uh, when the light uh, escapes from uh, a source with a strong gravity and neutron stars uh, are very compact objects, uh, which are second only to black holes, then the light uh, is bent. The, the rate is not a straight line, but it is bent. And uh, you can imagine that the polarization plane has to curve uh, as well. So the polarization direction will change. But in the presence of neutron stars, so in the presence of their strongest magnetic fields in the universe, we showed with the rigorous calculations that the magnetic field wins <laughs> uh, on, on the gravity. And so even if the magnetic field, uh, is, sorry, the, uh, the polarization direction is changed by the gravity, then after a small path of the photon, it is reported to perpendicular or parallel to the magnetic field. Because in any case, for neutron stars, the effect of gravity can occur only very close to the surface. And the magnetic field will last for, let's say, hundreds of uh, stellar radii for, uh, within 100 stellar radii. Wow, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the question. Yeah, thank you so much for those interesting questions, um, everyone. Um, I don't know how much time you have, but um, I, I would have a question for the future. Um, if that's okay with you, but if you need to leave because we've been going over an no, hour. No, no, please. <laughs> oh. So would it also be possible in the future to maybe observe black holes and or is someone or you, are you doing that already? And would there be, you know, would be really interesting to compare 
um, or like a threshold when like a enough matter is dense enough to turn into a black hole and and how um, you know the spectra would look like yeah yeah so uh, it, it's a very fascinating uh, problem that of uh, black hole observations also for polarization from the polarization point of view and indeed some uh, black hole sources black hole candidates have been observed in this first year of operation of the xp satellite uh, one of the most successful was uh, a cygnus x1 which is a known stellar mass black hole, so a black hole with a mass which is comparable with the mass of a star. And uh, in, in the case of black holes, uh, radiation that we can uh, uh, collect is, of course, radiation emitted from close to the black hole, because from the black hole directly cannot arrive any light. Uh, and so uh, we can study the effects uh, of the presence of the black hole for this particular light. The problem is that the black holes, at least for what we know, the theory, uh, the Einstein's theory is very uh, well verified. There are no effects uh, like, for example, for neutron stars, the magnetic field that can strongly polarize initially the radiation. So there is still an effect that can polarize because if we have if, if we have non-polarized radiation. Uh, at the start, uh, we cannot study the polarization at the observer, of course. So we need that the source collaborates, in a sense, and it polarizes light uh, near to the emission. And for black holes, this effect is not the magnetic field, but it is the scattering of light, for example, in a accretion disk around a black hole, or uh, in other structures around the black hole that are called corone around the black hole. And these can uh, uh, be studied. So there are expectations of depolarization. I also performed a study about uh, what could be the polarization of this kind of, uh, of sources. There are many hypotheses. We don't know exactly what is the right one. In the case of Cygnus X1, it was uh, the polarization measurement was sufficient to see that the black hole probably is inclined uh, with respect to us uh, with a certain angle. So polarization measurements have been performed uh, and uh, uh, they are feasible in principle. Uh, the, the only problem is to find the right black hole. That we collaborate with us and as a sort of initial polarization, which is the important thing to be observed. Yeah, thank you. And um, is there a tendency in a specific place um, where you're looking at that has a lot of magnetars that have similar characteristics or are they scattered all over? Um, so. Uh, for the moment, magnetars uh, have been uh, uh, the, the magnetars that have been observed are 25, I think, if I remember well, and they are more or less scattered on the disk of the uh, of the Milky Way. So they are, as I mentioned, galactic sources. If you go at slide 22, you see that the second one is exactly on the disk of the Milky Way. So. Uh, 
many others are inside this uh, region. Uh, curiously, the first one, which is also the brightest one among mag magnetars, is not uh, in the disk because it, it is in the northern sky, so it is uh, scattered uh, with respect to the disk. But the major part of the magnetars are on the disk. The problem with magnetars to be observed in polarized light is that they are faint sources with respect to other sources, like, for example, those of black hole candidates. Uh, the two that we had served in this first year of operation of XP are the brightest ones. For you is the brightest in general, and uh, 1RXS is the second one, the second brightest. Uh, we are trying to perform, so we proposed to the collaboration, uh, a third magnetar, which is called uh, um, 1806, if I remember well. And uh, this is an interesting source because, yes, it's fainter, but in 2004, it produced the strongest uh, magnetic, sorry, the strongest X-ray explosion ever detected in the last decades. In 2004, it was the last one uh, observed from a neutron star. And uh, it is a very active magnetar, so it, it could be very interesting to study radiation coming from this particular source. The only problem is that it is faint, and uh, polarimetry is a photon-hungry technique, so it has need of a large number of photons to say something. Probably future missions, uh, and there are, for example, there is a Chinese mission that uh, should be launched uh, in the future, 2027, I think, that has a sensitivity greater than uh, XP. But for the moment, we have to limit our research to uh, bright sources. And so let's hope that the next source uh, uh, is uh, sufficiently bright to be observed in a certain sense. And does the activity or also the pulsing have to do with in what stage uh, of the magnetars they are? Like, is there a theory about, um, you know, if they are earlier stage, later stage, mm -hmm. if, if that activity changes? So, uh, there are different hypotheses about uh, the stages of life of magnetars. For example, uh, among isolated neutron stars, uh, there is a class which is called X-ray dim isolated neutron stars that, as the name suggests, they are dim sources. Uh, and these are believed to be old magnetars. So magnetars that uh, have, in a certain sense, uh, um, no more power from their magnetic field. And so they cannot uh, exhibit anymore the strong activity of the active magnetars. So in a sense, uh, the, uh, they still have a, a stronger magnetic field than for pulsars. So there is this line of evolution towards uh, a less activity. So um, the, the, the key, in a sense, is if you see the power low tail, as I mentioned, uh, we have in a stage of activity. If you don't see the power low tail for many time and you don't see explosions or glitches, so irregularities in the motion or rotation, and uh, so on and so forth, uh, you are going towards a stage of... Uh, uh, let's say, maturity of the neutron star that probably will uh, settle as a whole the neutron star, as an X-ray isolated neutron star. 
And sorry to keep asking, but do you think the the crust will change? That there will be less crust or no crust and maybe no atmosphere then anymore also? So or, yeah. for the atmosphere, I think that it can change, of course. For example, the, uh, me the mechanism that I illustrated in which uh, uh, literally the atmosphere can rain on the surface of the neutron star, uh, which is called magnetic condensation. So it is possible that uh, if, an if a neutron star show an atmosphere in a moment, they can show the solid surface in another moment because of uh, particular phenomena on the surface. It's uh, less, it, it, it should be strange if the crust uh, uh, changed too much. For two reasons, let's say. The first one is of fundamental physics because uh, it, the neutron stars are made by the core of the original stars. So the matter is, uh, let's say, ordinary matter on the surface and it should not change in time because essentially protons does not decay. Neutrons can decay, but uh, with the density of neutron stars, uh, also neutrons uh, let's say that the, the decayment of neutrons uh, is uh, balanced uh, by the formation of neutrons. And the, other and the other reason is indeed the density of the neutron stars. So also when star quakes can occur, that some, someone imagined that the star quake is like an earthquake with fracture of the crust. This is not really true because in the presence of such uh, strong densities, it is impossible to crack the crust. It can deformate like a sort of mayonnaise but not, it cannot crack. So there are differences, but it is not excluded that we can study it uh, uh, with, the, with the polarization. We have only to put in order all the information from our theoretical models. Yeah, interesting. And one last question, do they differ or can you know if they differ a lot between the different type of elements they are made up of? or are they very similar? Uh, this is a, re a really interesting question because uh, in our uh, paper, we considered an iron condensate. So the solid surface is made by iron, let's say, which means very uh, EV elements with an atomic number of 26 uh, and a much greater number of neutrons because they are on a neutron star. Uh, but there are many models according to which uh, there could be a surface of uh, light elements like uh, helium or carbon. Uh, they cannot heavier than iron because iron uh, is the limit uh, uh, nucleus that can be created uh, in uh, nucleosynthesis inside stars. So there could be some strange matter like uh, neutron-rich nuclei, but not... Uh, uh, let's say, with an atomic number greater than the iron. Uh, but there are, yes, there are uh, expectations, different expectations for the polarization and also for the spectrum of uh, surfaces with different compositions. So iron, carbon, helium, and so on and so forth. Well, very interesting. And, and no lithium? Oh, uh, lithium, I think... Uh, it's uh, uh, it could be difficult in the sense that for the, for the abundance of lithium inside stars, because you know, 
uh, inside stars, you have different stages of nucleosynthesis. The first one is the hydrogen into helium, and the second one is helium into carbon. Uh, so lithium is in, is in the middle, and it is probably uh, unfavorable to be created and to be so much abundant in the neutron star surface to be seen. Well, thank you so much. This is so interesting. Um, I'm really, you know, I really appreciate the time you took to uh, present this um, really exciting um, groundbreaking results and um, to answer all of our questions. Um, so thank you so much. And it was uh, my great pleasure. Yeah. I, uh, I Karina, can I squeeze in a last question? Yeah, yeah, please. Oh, yeah. So, Roberto, yeah, thank you. The uh, yeah, I second uh, uh, all the uh, speakers that this is uh, really fantastic, you know, uh, and uh, uh, great uh, and uh, groundbreaking uh, results. So, yeah, I, I, after uh, reading more um, attentively, I, I think I got my own question answered. So, uh, for now, I got the um, uh, so the uh, the low energy versus the uh, high energy is the high energy that uh, the the QED effects uh, took effects, right? Just to 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 yeah to, yeah yeah to... exactly yeah 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 okay 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 so <laughs> then then so then essentially the the scattered ones that the, the from from the uh, uh, the atmosphere uh, uh, will give you the uh, one third. Uh, 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 mix uh, polarization, right? Um, it's not from the atmosphere, from but from the magnetosphere. The atmosphere, yeah, is... magnetosphere. exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, uh, so, so then, so I, I guess I'm asking uh, specifically the slice number. Um, let me see, is uh, twenty, right? Mm -hmm. So the blue arrow that uh, you, you're basically indicating that uh, it's the with and without scattering, am I correct? Exactly, exactly. On the left, you have without scattering, so there are different, the different curves correspond to different line of sights uh, of, this, of the neutron star. Uh, then the blue arrow indicates what happens when you add scattering to this uh, uh, receipt. Okay, gotcha. So then, so by this evidence, you also, you also show that uh, uh, during different phases, uh, during, uh, different, um, uh, uh, in two observations, you don't see this uh, repeating itself. At one time, you have you, you do uh, have strong evidence that uh, you see the two perpendicular uh, uh, polarization, and then in the twenty seven slides twenty seven, you show. So you uh, so what is the what what type of uh, activity on the on the star? What what kind of um, is is, uh, is is so there's some sort of uh, you, know, you as you I as I heard I'm just uh, trying to very um, confirm that is the it's like some sort of um, before maturity it's very active so that um, oh. this uh, this uh, scattering uh, is, is and, uh, yeah 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 perfect probably it's a confusion that I created when I answered to the previous question. Uh, probably you mean, uh, you refer to this uh, second magnetar in which I say that, uh, that, that there is no power law because probably 
so in the previous observations, we saw a power law. Now we didn't see a power law. Uh, and uh, this does not mean that necessarily the star is becoming old, uh, but there could be different uh, phases uh, along a neutron star. Uh, if you go to slide eight, uh, this is uh, typical by the twisted magnetosphere scenario proposed by Thomson et al. in 2002. So in a sense, the magnetic field inside the star, which has these, uh, let's say, transversal, transversal component is sufficiently strong to deform the crust. The crust is deformed and the field lines, as you could see in slide eight, rotates and gives you the twist. The twist extracts the particles and makes the magnetosphere and so the power low tail. But then the twist can return to zero because the uh, rigidity in a sense like a sort of spring, no? Uh, is released. So until the next uh, uh, great release of energy, we will not see another power law. Maybe in a few years, the source will be show a glitch, which means uh, an irregularity on the rotational motion. And this means that the crust have been cracked, let's say cracked in a, in a, a location. So if we could observe the source in that moment, probably we will see again the uh, power law. Yeah, uh, that's that's fascinating, very interesting. So how what is the periodicity that uh, according to this Thompson model of this? Okay, uh, the, uh, the, the periodicity for the short, uh, there are different uh, kind of explosions. There are short bursts and uh, intermediate slash giant flares. Short burst has uh, a periodicity which is uh, many in one year. So a number of events uh, in one year. Uh, intermediate flares uh, is much, much uh, rare in the sense that you can have some uh, events uh, like, for example, uh, an earthquake in a, in a particular location of the Earth. And finally, the giant flares, uh, we only saw three events uh, starting from 1979. The first magnetar observed was observed uh, for, for a giant flare. Uh, then we observed another in uh, 1999 uh, and another one in 2004, that is uh, what I mentioned uh, in one of the answers. So only three giant flares, some but rare intermediate flares and much uh, short burst. Wow, so so this actually make it feasible for you to actually plan your observation window to to verify yeah, yeah. the part uh, part. The only problem is that the short bursts are really short. So the, the duration could be 0.1 second. And uh, the problem is that the point in the source, the yes, the source with the instrument, uh, you can, uh, for the uh, major part of the observation, you cannot match uh, the short burst. Uh, the ideal thing should be to locate uh, an intermediate or a giant flare, which can last for thousands of seconds. And so you have the time of pointing the, the satellite to the source. The problem is indeed that uh, we have no, uh, no events. <laughs> so the last one was in 2004. Let's wait for another one. 
that's so cool. Yeah, thank you, Roberto. This yeah, is fascinating. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Um, again, this is really fantastic. Uh, and I'm so glad you made the time to come here and share this with us. And um, yeah, we wish you all the best and all the luck and a lot of funding. Uh, thank you. And also to your and to your channel, uh, uh, which is very interesting. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate hearing that. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for coming, asking questions. And um, yeah, uh, it was a really wonderful discussion. I really appreciated it. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. I know for Frank, it's already late uh, or, or morning, wherever you are. And I hope I hear you all back soon. And the next discussion will be with Dr. Stöger uh, talking about um, aging due to unbalanced gene expression. Um, so, yeah, it will be a different type of discussion, but uh, I think it will be interesting. And, uh, yeah. Thank you, Roberto. Uh, good Thank luck you. for everything and um, congratulations again. I'll close Thank up. you. Bye bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. And three, Thanks. two, one. Bye, everyone.